Book 5, Chapters 1-6 to six of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Preface. There have been certain writers of no small authority who have held that the sole duty of the orator was to instruct. In their view, appeals to the emotions were to be excluded for two reasons. First, on the ground that all disturbance of the mind was a fault, and secondly, that it was wrong to distract the judge from the truth by exciting his pity, bringing influence to bear, and the like. Further, to seek to charm the audience when the aim of the orator was merely to win success was, in their opinion, not only superfluous for a pleader, but hardly worthy of a self-respecting man. The majority, however, while admitting that such arts undoubtedly formed part of oratory, held that its special and peculiar task is to make good the case which it maintains and refute that of its opponent. Whichever of these views is correct, for at this point I do not propose to express my own opinion, they will regard this book as serving a very necessary purpose, since it will deal entirely with the points on which they lay such stress, although all that I have already said on the subject of judicial causes is subservient to the same end. For the purpose of the exordium and the statement of facts is merely to prepare the judge for these points, while it would be a work of supererogation to know the basis of cases or to consider the other points dealt with above unless we intend to proceed to the consideration of the proof. Finally, of the five parts into which we divided judicial cases, any single one other than the proof may, on occasion, be dispensed with. But there can be no suit in which the proof is not absolutely necessary. With regard to the rules to be observed in this connection, we shall, I think, be wisest to follow our previous method of classification, and show first what is common to all cases, and then proceed to point out those which are peculiar to the several kinds of cases. Chapter 1 to begin with, it may be noted that the division laid down by Aristotle has met with almost universal approval. It is to the effect that there are some proofs adopted by the orator which lie outside the art of speaking, and others which he himself deduces, or, if I may use the term, begets out of his case. The former, therefore, have been styled atechnoi, or inartificial proofs, the latter entechnoi, or artificial. To the first class belong decisions of previous courts, rumors, evidence extracted by torture, documents, oaths, and witnesses, for it is with these that the majority of forensic arguments are concerned. But, though in themselves they involve no art, all the powers of eloquence are, as a rule, required to disparage or refute them. Consequently, in my opinion, those who would eliminate the whole of this class of proof from their rules of oratory deserve the strongest condemnation. It is not, however, my intention to embrace all that can be said for or against these views. I do not, for instance, propose to lay down rules for commonplaces, a task requiring infinite detail, but merely to sketch out the general lines and method to be followed by the orator. The method once indicated, it is for the individual orator not merely to employ his powers on its application, but on the invention of similar methods, as the circumstances of the case may demand. For it is impossible to deal with every kind of case. 
even if we confine ourselves to those which have actually occurred in the past without considering those which may occur in the future. Chapter 2. As regards decisions in previous courts, these fall under three heads. First, we have matters on which judgment has been given at some time or other in cases of a similar nature. These are, however, more correctly termed precedents, as for instance, where a father's will has been annulled or confirmed in opposition to his son's. Secondly, there are judgments concerned with the case itself. It is from these that the name praiudicium is derived. As examples, I may cite those passed against Opianicus, or by the Senate against Milo. Thirdly, there are judgments passed on the actual case, as for example in cases where the accused has been deported, or where renewed application is made for the recognition of an individual as a free man, or in portions of cases tried in the centumviral court, which come before two different panels of judges. Such previous decisions are, as a rule, confirmed in two ways, by the authority of those who gave the decision, and by the likeness between the two cases. As for their reversal, this can rarely be obtained by denouncing the judges, unless they have been guilty of obvious error. For each of those who are trying the case wishes the decision given by another to stand, since he too has to give judgment and is reluctant to create a precedent that may recoil upon himself. Consequently, as regards the first two cases, we must, if possible, take refuge in some dissimilarity between the two cases, and two cases are scarcely ever alike in all their details. If, however, such a course is impossible, and the case is the same as that on which the previous decision was given, we must complain of the negligence shown in the conduct of the previous case, or of the weakness of the parties condemned, or of undue influence employed to corrupt the witnesses, or, again, of popular prejudice or ignorance which reacted unfavorably against our client. Or else, we must consider what has occurred since, to alter the aspect of the case. If none of these courses can be adopted, it will still be possible to point out that the peculiar circumstances of many trials have led to unjust decisions. Hence, condemnation such as that of Rutilius, and acquittal such as those of Claudius and Catiline. We must also ask the judges to consider the facts of the case on their merits, rather than make their verdict the inevitable consequence of a verdict given by others. When, however, we are confronted by decrees of the Senate or ordinances of emperors or magistrates, there is no remedy, unless we can make out that the sum difference, however small, between the cases, or that the same persons or persons holding the same powers have made some subsequent enactment reversing the former decision. Failing this, there will be no case for judgment. Chapter 3 with regard to rumor and common report, one party will call them the verdict of public opinion and the testimony of the world at large. The other will describe them as vague talk, based on no sure authority, to which malignity has given birth and credulity increase, an ill to which even the most innocent of men may be exposed by the deliberate dissemination of falsehood on the part of their enemies." it will be easy for both parties to produce precedents to support their arguments. Chapter 4. A like situation arises in the case of evidence extracted by torture, 
One party will style torture an infallible method of discovering the truth, while the other will allege that it also often results in false confessions, since, with some, their capacity of endurance makes lying an easy thing, while with others, weakness makes it a necessity. It is hardly worth my while to say more on the subject, as the speeches both of ancient and modern orators are full of this topic. Individual cases may, however, involve special considerations in this connection. For if the point at issue is whether torture should be applied, it will make all the difference who it is who demands or offers it, who it is that is to be subjected to torture, against whom the evidence thus sought will tell, and what is the motive for the demand. If, on the other hand, torture has already been applied, it will make all the difference who was in charge of the proceedings, who was the victim, and what the nature of the torture, whether the confession was credible or consistent, whether the witness stuck to his first statement or changed it under the influence of pain, and whether he made it at the beginning of the torture or only after it had continued some time. The variety of such questions is as infinite as the variety of actual cases. Chapter 5 it is also frequently necessary to speak against documents, for it is common knowledge that they are often not merely rebutted, but even attacked as forgeries. But as this implies either fraud or ignorance on the part of the signatories, it is safer and easier to make the charge one of ignorance, because by so doing we reduce the number of the persons accused. But our proceedings as a whole will draw their arguments from the circumstances of the case at issue, for example, it may be incredible that an incident occurred as stated in the documents, or, as more often happens, the evidence of the documents may be overthrown by other proofs, which are likewise of an inartificial nature. If, for example, it is alleged that the person whose interests are prejudiced by the document, or one of the signatories was absent when the document was signed, or deceased before its signature, or if the dates disagree, or events preceding or following the writing of the document are inconsistent with it. Even a simple inspection of a document is often sufficient for the detection of forgery. Chapter 6. With regard to oaths, parties either offer to take an oath themselves or refuse to accept the oath of their opponent, demand that their opponent should take an oath, or refuse to comply with a similar demand when proffered to themselves. To offer to take an oath unconditionally without demanding that one's opponent should likewise take an oath is, as a rule, a sign of bad faith. If, however, anyone should take this course, he will defend his action by appealing to the blamelessness of his life as rendering perjury on his part incredible, or by the solemn nature of the oath, with regard to which he will win all the greater credence. If, without the least show of eagerness to take the oath, he makes it clear that he does not shrink from so solemn a duty. Or again, if the case is such as to make this possible, he will rely on the trivial nature of the point in dispute to win belief, on the ground that he would not incur the risk of divine displeasure when so little is at stake. Or finally, he may, in addition to the other means which he employs to win his case, offer to take an oath as a culminating proof of a clear conscience. The man who refuses to accept his opponent's offer to take an oath will allege that the inequality of their respective conditions 
are not the same for both parties, and will point out that many persons are not in the least afraid of committing perjury, even philosophers having been found to deny that the gods interfere in human affairs. And further, that he who is ready to take an oath without being asked to do so is really proposing to pass sentence on his own case and to show what an easy and trivial thing he thinks the oath which he offers to take. On the other hand, the man who proposes to put his opponent on oath appears to act with moderation, since he is making his adversary a judge in his own case, while he frees the actual judge from the burden of coming to a decision, since the latter would assuredly prefer to rest on another man's oath than on his own. This fact makes the refusal to take an oath all the more difficult, unless indeed the affair in question be of such a nature that it cannot be supposed that the facts are known to the person asked to take the oath. Failing this excuse, there is only one course open to him. He must say that his opponent is trying to excite a prejudice against him, and is endeavoring to give the impression that he has real ground for complaint, though he is not in a position to win his case. Consequently, though a dishonest man would eagerly have availed himself of the proposal, he prefers to prove the truth of his statements rather than leave a doubt in anyone's mind as to whether he had committed perjury or no. But in my young days, advocates grown old in pleading used to lay down as a rule that we should never be in a hurry to propose that our opponent should take an oath, just as we should never allow him the choice of a judge, nor select our judge from among the supporters of the opposite side. For, if it is regarded as a disgrace to such a supporter to say anything against his client, it is surely a still worse disgrace that he should do anything that will harm his client's case. End of chapter 6